Hello and welcome. I'm the moderator for today. I'm Rafil Malik from the Regional Cybersecurity Team here at HSBC. So with that, I'm going to now introduce um, today's experts. So we have with us today, returning, our um, former FBI special agents. We have J.R. Maines, who's now the Global Head of Cyber Intelligence and Threat Analysis at HSBC, and Tim Kolk, the Head of Strategic Cyber Intelligence at HSBC. And they'll be covering today's headline topic, which is ransomware. The things that are important here is that our role is to inform, educate, and advise HSBC and the broader cybersecurity industry um, and our mission in all this is to empower you all as decision makers, embolden everyone's defenses, and ideally, through the information that we share and through the operations that we conduct, we end up weakening our adversaries. Um, and the key to all of this, though, is sharing. So sharing is paramount for us. Sharing what we found, sharing our tactical information, sharing our strategic information, um, and putting on sessions like this, uh, and then putting out that information across mailing lists and through trusted groups, um, that's the key bit for us that helps defend the cyber, the, uh, cyber ecosystem um, and prevents global cyber attacks from having um, even larger impacts than they already do. Okay, so that's a little bit about our team. And now for the topic at hand, I'm going to kick it back over to Tim to dive us into ransomware. Yeah, so uh, I think everyone knows what ransomware is and has, has probably seen about it in the news and everything like that. So it's obviously a style of attack where either your data is encrypted, uh, or somehow, you know, stolen and held sort of for a ransom and sort of a blackmail operation. So we're going to go through a couple of misconceptions about ransomware, and then we're going to take you through sort of a full ransomware sort of attack chain from a high level so we understand, uh, you know, why we understand the things we do about it since we are looking at it all the time. Um, so one of the things that's important to remember about ransomware is that it completely dominates cyber criminal landscape. When we talk about ransomware, we're really talking about an umbrella term that encompasses a lot of things like phishing, malware as a service, all these initial access brokers, affiliate programs, all of these things are sort of in service to overall ransomware operations. So when you see something about emotech campaigns that are trying to steal credentials, or you see something about a phishing campaign that's trying to steal credentials, usually those credentials are then being sold uh, for the purpose of a ransomware operation at the end. Uh, and the reason this is, is because of money, right? Ransomware operations accounted last year for about 600 million, uh, that's US dollars, and that's probably undershooting it a little bit, if, if we're being honest. 2022 is, is looking to be about the same, uh, maybe a little bit less, we did see a little drop off over the last couple of months, but it is a moneymaker. And so when there's a moneymaker, it means that all of these other sort of criminal elements in the cyber landscape are going to kind of fall under that umbrella term. So that brings us to some of these misconceptions that we've seen. We've, uh, ransomware threat actors target countries, some countries over others. Not really. Uh, they're mostly just scanning and, and looking for who's an easy target and they'll hit whoever they can get to regardless of where that victim is. Another misconception is sort of the idea that if I just pay this ransom, I'll get my data back, I'll get the decryptor, and these ransomware threat actors will go away. That is patently untrue. Basically, when you do pay a ransom, there is absolutely no guarantee that you are going to recover at all. Um, and there's no guarantee that your data is going to be safe or erased or anything like that. There's just absolutely none whatsoever. Finally, ransomware threat actors are all sophisticated. Some of them are very, very advanced and sophisticated and know what they're doing. Many more are following a very defined attack chain that we've seen sort of play out over the last two and a half years. And they're almost following a playbook that is set for them uh, by probably more advanced threat actors, what we would call the ransomware operators. So with that, we're going to talk about ransomware attack chains, and we're going to begin with the initial access phase. And this is a good chance for us to kind of step back for a second 
and just talk broadly about how sort of cyber attacks happen. Really, when we think about cyber attacks, we need to think of them as happening along an attack chain rather than a singular event where someone sort of just clicks a link and everything bad happens right after that. The threat actor has to take a number of steps to get to the point where they're able to deploy an encryption payload. And we describe this as an attack chain. It's, it's kind of standard language in the cybersecurity community. And the attack chain is sort of what the, the steps the threat actor has to take to ultimately have the impact that they want, be that a ransomware incident, be that a data breach, a theft, or something like that. These have to happen in a number of steps, and if they don't, uh, then the threat actor doesn't succeed. And that's why we've set up our defenses in something called defense in depth. We set up layers of defense to prevent sort of those attack chains from progressing. That's generally when we're talking about defense in depth. That's why we're doing it. So, Jared, did you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say one, one more point on defense in depth is that the idea is that you have defenses at all of these different places in your network, and it's okay to have a failure in one place because you have different layers of defenses that will catch it and stop it in other places. So, um, as we go through this story about how a threat actor might operate against a, a target environment, you know, think about all the places that you could, within your own company's environment, detect and stop that type of activity. Okay, back to you, Tim. Excellent. All right. So obviously the first step that a threat actor needs to take when they want to launch a ransomware operation is they need to get initial access to the victim network. All right. So what you see here is a very, very high level sort of understanding of how uh, a network is generally set up. We have a corporate environment. We have work laptops that are logging in through VPNs. You know, from that sort of corporate environment, they can get up to the internet, but there's firewalls and all sort of stuff. So the threat actor has to find a way to get inside this, right? This is, think, think of it as like, this is they have to break into this network. Now, they do this in a lot of ways. And one of the most common ways, as we see, is phishing. Now, phishing is sort of indiscriminate. They'll send it to millions of accounts without knowing who those accounts even belong to. They're just looking for someone to get, you know, click on something that gives them that foothold or steals credentials or, or something along those lines. So once they do get in, obviously they have to move around. They can't just sit on whatever they've gotten into because that's not going to give them sort of the access they need. And this is when we go into the uh, lateral movement side. So JR. Yeah, so let's just imagine we've got a phishing example here. You've got a user on your network who's opened an email. So when that email is opened, a piece of malware is installed on that machine, and that malware is designed to run persistently on that machine and then ideally communicate back with an actor through a command and control server. So one of the first things he wants to do is do something known as privileged escalation. So that's becoming a super user or an administrator um, within your corporate environment, um, which will give him the rights to start moving around that environment. So now that he has administrative access, uh, he's going to want to start moving around this target environment to see what is interesting and what the threat actor might want to exfiltrate from that network. So again, Cobalt Strike provides a super nice view to look at what are the machines that the current machine can see, what are the rights on the different things, and you can literally just, it's just point and click, right click, choose the, the commands you want to use, and he can just, just like that start moving over to your email server. So emails are great. So emails tell the threat actors a ton about your organization. There might be information in there about your cyber insurance policies, uh, maybe ongoing other you know, important corporate things that are going on. So email is something that definitely a threat actor will want to try to try to steal some, some from. But he'll keep looking around. And then, you know, if you have a big file storage area with sensitive data, that threat actor is going to want to exfiltrate all of it. So he's actually going to use that same mechanism of that malware 
to send all that data back. And then he can really start analyzing the, the data and seeing how else he can manipulate you beyond just encrypting your files because data theft is such an important part of ransomware attacks. Just because they paid this ransom doesn't mean the threat actor deleted this data. It just means they promised not to leak it publicly on their, their data leak sites. So again, when you're dealing with criminals, and this is true across all crimes, criminals lie and you can't trust criminals. So uh, that's, those are kind of synonymous terms, but this is going to be the theme uh, when you deal with any cyber attack or any criminal actions at all. And, okay. and I'll add one more thing there, JR2, is that um, right. and so it shows the importance of kind of where we've gone in the ransomware space is that it used to be very much that critical function of everything having been encrypted was very difficult to recover from. But as you know, organizations figured out how to have offline backups and things like that, Ransomware threat actors then sort of pivoted a little bit and they said, well, we'll steal your data too. So even if you can recover, you have to pay us not to release this data. And that's become probably more valuable than the encryption part itself, if, if we're honest. Okay, so what's left to do here? You know, the threat actor's got all your data. So the threat actor's gonna go through his to-do list here. He's gonna say, look, I've established persistent access in here. I've become an administrator. I've escalated my privileges. I've exfiltrated all the information that I, that I care about. So now it's about finding an ideal time to actually impact this network. So like a weekend or nights, he needs to delete all the backups on your system. So through the process of, of moving around that network, he'll figure out when, where you store all your backups. This is why when you hear people talk about having offline backups, it's exactly to prevent a threat actor from deleting your backup. So if, you're, if your backup drive is connected to your network, that's not offline, that's still connected to your network. Um, so Tim, why don't you walk us through what's happening here? Sure, and there's actually uh, one other thing that could happen when this occurs as well, and, and that is that we frequently will see um, a ransomware sort of threat actor, someone masquerading as a ransomware threat actor, instead of pushing an encryption payload, they just push a destructive payload, which sort of destroys the data, or they push an encryption payload without any intention of providing a decryptor, which is, for all intents and purposes, a destructive act. You're never going to be able to decrypt that information. And that's something that we've seen a lot of times of the same ransomware sort of attack chain we see. It just ends with destructive malware rather than sort of an encryption payload where the intent is a financial gain, a ransom, and then a, a decryptor or something like that. So, of course, what happens when, when now that, you know, everything has gone bad? The attack chain has worked its way out. Uh, we have encryption. Well, the first thing you're going to see is a ransom note, right? They say things like, uh, you've been ransomed. We are the group that's doing it to you. You need to head on over to our, our data leak sites so that we can start having a conversation about what ransom is going to be, what you're going to pay, how you're gonna pay, how you're gonna purchase the cryptocurrency to do that. And they actually offer a little bit of support to make sure that the victim can do all of these things because ultimately this is a financial, financially motivated crime they want to happen. Oftentimes we see when a victim is hit and they'll pay the ransom, they'll say, we have purchased our data back and we can say that it is, it is now back in our hands. That is completely wrong, right? When this happens, that data is compromised. There is no evidence that uh, uh, there is any destruction is taking place. Um, and that needs to kind of be, be said right out, out on front there. It's, it's you're just paying for a promise of destruction. You're not paying for real destruction. So this kind of brings us to maybe our final point uh, when it comes to these ransomware negotiations, right? And that is the decision to pay or not to pay, right? What we can tell you is that over the last couple of years, we've seen a number of things that will influence this decision and should influence decisions for, for a lot of people. First and foremost, we see a lot of fake decryptors or slow decryptors. 
So when you purchase one of these from a, a threat actor, they'll give you sort of a program that they'll say, run this on your network, and this will decrypt all of the files that we've encrypted for you. We've seen a lot of them are fake uh, decryptors that will actually just now encrypt the encrypted data to make you pay again. We've seen decryptors that don't really work all that well. And finally, this is just the FBI. Obviously, Rafael had mentioned that JR and I are former FBI agents, so we always have to give a nod to, to our former uh, our, our, our former our bureau there. But the FBI and a lot of law enforcement agencies around the world do not recommend paying ransoms, right? So all of this, I think, kind of creates a picture of what you should or shouldn't do. Our line, which we've always said based on the intel that we've been seeing over and over again, is that paying a ransom, there is no guarantee of any recovery when you pay a ransom. So if your organization is hit by ransomware and someone is saying, let's just pay for this to go away, that is a, a bad assumption. And it's not based on facts or evidence or any of the intel that we've been kind of collecting for the last year, two, three years at this point. So, so one of the things that we wanted to provide is sort of a, a, a tips for creating ransomware simulations so that folks can go back and say, all right, if I'm going to run a, a red team test, a pen test against my organization, what are some things I should incorporate? to make sure that that ransomware attack or that simulation is well within line of what uh, we're seeing out in the threat, th the threat landscape. So first and foremost, you should be running ransomware simulations that use real tactics and techniques that ransomware actors use today. We should be testing our sort of in, our initial access defenses to keep those things uh, from happening. Uh, you know, so again, that's going to be using multi-factor authentication wherever we can and ensuring that we have kind of robust patching to make sure those vulnerabilities don't exist on, on external uh, facing infrastructure. It shouldn't exist on internal either, uh, but obviously the priority would be external for the initial access phase here. We also want to see these red teams and these pen testers use the tools that ransomware actors are using, and that is Cobalt Strike. I think it is used probably in about 70 or 80% of the ransomware attacks we've seen. I think that's some of the stats that are coming out. Very popular tool for the reasons JR just showed. It's point and click hacking. It's You do not have to be a very technical person. If someone just spends an afternoon just kind of clicking around with Cobalt Strike, you'll figure out how to use it pretty quickly. It's very, very simple to use. And what are the things that maybe we should be looking for within the environment uh, and, and ensuring that we can detect, right? We know that threat actors love to disable security tools. Do we have rules around that that will fire off a red flag that says, hey, your, your AV just got shut off. You should, you should definitely be looking into why. Uh, the creation of new admin accounts or sort of anomalous behavior with admin accounts. So do we see our admin accounts being logged into by IP addresses that are not sort of part of our corporate network? Do we see them being logged into at very odd times that are not in line with our normal work schedules? So we should be thinking, can you detect the threat actor doing these things? I think the first part is not necessarily just stop it. We obviously don't want this stuff to happen. Can you even detect these things happening within your network? That's a very important part is the identification before we can get to the mitigation part. And guys, as always, thank you so much. So with that, um, thank you all and goodbye.